morning, church. Today we're going to be looking at a great and well-known text from the Bible, uh, the text of Daniel 6. So go ahead and open there now if you haven't already. It gives us the account of Daniel in the lion's den, or as I'm titling it, Daniel, faithful follower of God in the lion's dens, and you can put an S on the end of den if you want to, completely optional. I'll get to that in a little bit. Now, a couple of words of caution are appropriate as we approach this particular scripture. One caution is against the trap of familiarity. If you're like me, you've heard about Daniel from a young age and you know how the story ends. So maybe you've seen children's Bibles and storybooks with colorful pictures in it. I myself remember one of my vacation Bible school teachers who used a flannel graph. That might be a technology that's a little too old for some of you to remember, but it consisted of a storyboard made of fuzzy felt and you could slap brightly colored characters up there on it, okay? Some other top 10 flannel graph stories included Noah and the Ark and uh, Joseph and his coat of many colors. But having that familiarity, we can be tempted to believe that we know the material so well that we have nothing new to glean from it. A second caution is the distortion that our memories can bring to the text. Our experiences with this text can can be associated with happy memories, maybe sitting in our parents' lap so we can minimize maybe the horror, the pain, and the reality that really took place in these passages. The pain of the people being led into captivity or the horror of a flood that destroyed nearly all living things, and the terror of a man betrayed by 10 of his brothers into slavery in Egypt. So with those cautions issued, let's approach this text afresh today, trusting that the Lord will send his spirit to reveal something new to each one of us this morning. And just as we just sung about the faithfulness of God, let's see how the faithfulness of the believer is modeled by Daniel and why that matters today. We have a practice here of standing when we're reading from the word. Would you mind joining me uh, and stand while I read? I'm gonna begin in Daniel chapter five, verse 29, and I will be reading through all of chapter six. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, 
we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, <clears throat> he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now, O king, that is a law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you, 
I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now, the book of Daniel, and even just this chapter, can teach us many things. But one of the things that Daniel clearly models for us is that faithfulness to God means our foremost allegiance is to God. Faithfulness to God means our foremost allegiance is to God. Let's see how that presents itself. So as the curtain rises, we find the Israelite people are in exile, far from Jerusalem, from the promised land of Canaan. How did they get there? Let's begin by taking a look at a timeline for the time in which we find Daniel. In 605, King Nebuchadnezzar had taken captive the kingdom of Judah. At the end of the battle, Jerusalem begins paying tribute to, to King Nebuchadnezzar. But the battle has its consequences, and Daniel and many other youths are taken captive to Babylon. In 586, Jerusalem quits paying tribute. Jerusalem then falls to Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who sets fire to the temple and the palace destroying the city. The prophet Jeremiah, who was alive in the early days of Daniel, had prophesied in what we now call Jeremiah chapter 25 and chapter 29, that Israel would go into captivity for 70 years. He had warned Israel for 23 years that they had a need to repent or they would be led into slavery. But Israel had not stayed faithful to Yahweh. God had counseled his people through Moses back in Deuteronomy 8 to follow his commands and to remember him when they came into the promised land, but they had not. And so here they are in Babylon. In 539, which is where we pick up the story today, the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon and captives would soon be allowed to begin returning back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in the city. Now, the trip to Babylon was not a short one, nor was it an easy one. By the way, if you know my wife, Bridget, you know I had no choice but to include a map this morning. Um, So she's into maps the way that some people are into the stock market or professional sports. A trip by the primary route in that day would be about 900 miles. I have a son, ironically named Daniel, who's been in Denver this week with his sister Olivia. And uh, that's about 900 miles. Now they went there willingly and by vehicle. So whereas Daniel with his youthful friends would have made this trek into exile, into slavery on foot. This count is given in Daniel 1. It says, then King Nebuchadnezzar commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, incompetent to stand in the king's palace 
and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans being the Babylonians. We'll find that the book of Daniel is, at least in part, the story of a believer whose faithfulness caused him to continue to put his foremost allegiance in God, despite a culture hostile to his belief. If only we could somehow relate to that struggle ourselves. For Daniel, part of that struggle began when Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs, made the decision to rename Daniel and his three friends. Each of them had been given names that reflected attachments to the one true God, Yahweh. But Ashpenaz assigns them new names as a first attempt of getting them to adopt the Babylonian culture. Two of the young men, Daniel and Mishael, had names that ended in El, which is a name of God. And the other two, Hananiah and Azariah, had names that ended in Aya, which is an abbreviation of Yahweh. As you can see, uh, Lady Protect the King or Bell Protect the King uh, references a Babylonian goddess of Bell. You can see how they tried to modify their names to break the attachment to Yahweh here. So with that backdrop, we need to fast forward now from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 5. During his exile, Daniel had prophesied about a change of kingdoms, including the one that's about to happen. His three famous friends have already faced the fiery furnace, and that's not easy to say real fast, by the way, uh, and escaped unscathed. Daniel has now served decades in the Babylonian government under Nebuchadnezzar, his successors, and now Belshazzar. And on this night, at the end of chapter 5, Belshazzar holds a strange banquet indeed, with the Medes and Persians surrounding his city. The surrounding territory around the city of Babylon had already been conquered by the Medes and Persians, but he holds a banquet for 1,000 of his lords, using the furnishings from the Jewish temple. I'm sure this was much to Daniel's disgust. <clears throat> we can't know for sure, but it's been suggested that maybe Belshazzar and his guest felt that the city Babylon itself couldn't fall, that it was considered impenetrable, sort of like the Helm's Deep Fortress from the Two Towers movie in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Babylon had been built as a fortress. It had been built with three rings of walls around it, at least 40 feet tall. Herodotus, an ancient Greek historian, described the walls as being so thick that you could hold chariot races on top of them, four chariots across. Now, many believe his descriptions are somewhat exaggerated, but there's no doubt that the city was built to withstand an assault. So it is in this setting that Belshazzar, having had his death prophesied by Daniel, <clears throat> a discussion for another day, promotes Daniel to third highest in the kingdom. Now, contrary to that flannel graph illustration that we looked at earlier, Daniel is not at this point a spring chicken, okay? He served in the Babylonian court for nearly 70 years and is likely over 80 years old as we move into chapter six now advising King Darius, who we're told at the end of chapter five, is himself 62. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. 
Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So as chapter six opens, Darius has decided to appoint 120 satraps. These would be princes or governors. Um, We have a map of the empire of the Medes and Persians. And at its height back in this time, it exceeded uh, 2 million square miles. So it's quite, quite the kingdom. Now, Daniel distinguishes himself as he had under earlier kings to the point where King Darius wants to put him over the whole kingdom. What we don't know in verse 3 is how long it took for Daniel to distinguish himself above his co-workers and for this envy and resentment to grow among his co-workers. Daniel would have clearly been on the radar of Darius from day one as the third in command in this hostile takeover. But perhaps the Medes and Persians didn't view him as a threat to eliminate since he himself wasn't Babylonian, but rather a Jewish exile. Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, had met his end during the transition. So King Darius hits the jackpot. He comes into a new position with someone on hand who has so much information about the running of the kingdom. This this is a triumph, this is a win. But it's not such great news for Daniel's fellow rulers. They resent him because he has done such a good job that the king likes him. He is that annoying teacher's pet. The kid who always has the answer, but they can't find a way to get him in trouble. I mean, it gives us a chance to ask ourselves, if we were in a similar situation, would our coworkers have the same problem? Would our witness in the workplace by the work we're doing be such a testimony as to elevate us in the eyes of those above us Or would we be easy pickings for coworkers looking to torpedo us for lack of quality or negligence in how we perform our duties? Like Daniel, I work for government. It's a government that's not always supportive of my beliefs. So I find myself at times looking to Daniel for encouragement. It's naive to think that Daniel didn't have rough days and struggle with policies he didn't like, especially as a follower of God in a pagan government. In addressing this type of situation, the Apostle Paul weighs in from Colossians chapter three, verses 23 and 24, writing, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. As Treg noted earlier, God also makes it clear in Romans 13 that he alone determines who is ruling. In Romans 13, Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities Resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
So God has established the governments that exist on our planet, whether we like all of them or not. Jesus himself lived under Roman oppression and dictatorship. And as part of the Godhead, he had even established that Roman government under which he willingly subjected himself. We tend to be a tribal people. Now we don't get to choose into which ethnicity or country we're born or what culture we're born into, but we do choose other tribes. We choose cardinals, cubs, we choose political parties, we choose the Packers. I got to visit Lambeau for the first time this past week, so I'm still a little excited, okay? Um, and we even have some of those who knowingly choose lost causes like the Chicago Bears. But, <laughs> yeah, we, we'll see by Christmas, okay. I am personally grateful though to have been born into the USA with all the freedoms that it affords me in which I am celebrating this weekend. But God points out that as his followers, we have a higher group to identify with, a higher identity to which we belong, our identity as children of God. As Paul writes in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel had been born into the family of Israel. And despite that, and despite being in exile, Daniel had served Nebuchadnezzar faithfully. Daniel served Belshazzar faithfully. Daniel served Darius faithfully. But most importantly, Daniel served, and I believe is even now serving, the one living God, Yahweh, faithfully. His foremost identity is that of a follower of God. Well, it's in verses six to nine, we see that it's that identity that brings Daniel to the test as he's surrounded by the first den of lions in this chapter. Those metaphorical lions being the satraps and governors who are out to trap him. Then these kings, these high officials and satraps came by agreement. You may have a note there that says a throng or like a mob, right? To the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. And who doesn't like to hear that in their ears? All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, we all agree that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So they... These satraps, they come and they remind Darius of his irrevocable commitment. And it was this same property of irrevocable law, by the way, by which God used Esther to save the Jews and establish the festival of Purim. These satraps come to Darius and pretend to be his fan club. We're making you God for a month. Everybody's on board. Satrap number one, satrap number two, the lunch truck guy, the paper boy, the mailman, the waitress down at the diner. We've checked with everybody and they all think it's a great idea. I'm guessing though that they didn't consult Daniel who was soon to be their boss. On the other hand, I don't think Daniel was unaware of the plot. So in verse 10, when he learns it's in effect, he's faced with a decision. He has a very difficult circumstance challenging him 
a decision to make. And his, <clears throat> this is really the turning point upon which the entire chapter turns. Maybe he had already wrestled with what to do if push came to shove. It might be prudent as followers of God to understand and commit ahead of time to our lines in the sand before the day of decision arrives. In his spirit, Daniel knew what most of us know, what Peter exclaimed when told to stop preaching the good news of Jesus. We must obey God rather than men. Jesus in Matthew 10 clearly lets us know, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So Daniel chooses not to alter his daily pattern of worshiping God based on this decree. He gets down on his knees with the window open toward Jerusalem and gives thanks to God, also offering petitions and pleas. It makes me wonder if maybe Daniel was recalling the prayer of Solomon that was offered in 1 Kings chapter 8 when Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple and had envisioned a day when the people might be in exile. So he'd prayed, if they repent with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven in your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. So Daniel's prayers continue. Now, like it or not, we live in a post-Christian culture. What, what's that term mean? It means that our world is growing increasingly hostile towards the name and the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Truth is not an absolute anymore, but varies by the beholder. I was raised hearing the familiar cliche of God, family, and country. But the Barna Research Group conducted a poll in 2015 that found the real order that people report they function by is family first, followed by being American with religious faith coming in third. But here's the good news. God endowed in us that passion, a passion that can be directed on behalf of our country, on behalf of our family, on behalf of our God. So I wanna be clear here that I'm not suggesting anyone love their country or their family less. Rather the challenge is how do we grow a passion for God that surpasses even the passions we have for those things. That we learn to love him first with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, as we were reminded a few weeks ago by Trig. <clears throat> but it does also raise the question, what will be our response when supporting family is in conflict with supporting God's word? What will we do if the day comes when committing to our country comes into direct conflict with committing to our Savior. 
as our culture becomes increasingly hostile, God makes clear in his word that our foremost allegiance must be to him. He is above all nations, including ours, and he deserves our unflinching commitment and devotion. So what do we do with that? How do we apply it? I had a very quirky character of a finance professor when I attended Judson College many years ago, uh, Ron Richards. And he said that if you gave him your checkbook and your calendar, which had nothing to do with an iPhone back then, um, he could tell he could tell you what you believed. Maybe this weekend would be a good time to evaluate how we really invest our passions, our resources, and our time, our heart, our mind, and our strength. All the while remembering that faithfulness to God means our foremost identity and allegiance is to God. Well, second thing that Daniel models for us is that faithfulness to God means trusting him in all circumstances. So let's shift back to the office of King Darius, okay? The first group of lions, those metaphorical lions, the satraps, being ever so helpful, report back to Darius in verses 11 through 13 that Daniel is not following the new rule. They remind him of his duty to put Daniel into the lion's den. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Darius has painted himself into a corner. He has to be a man of his word here. He has to be, in fact, a king of his word. Our king also, by the way, will not break his word. Everything that he has said he will do, he will do. So then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Now both Daniel and Darius are about to have a night that they will never forget. If you're like me and you've lived long enough to make a few rotations around the sun, You know what it's like to have a gut-wrencher of a night, to make a mistake so big that you can't sleep. You can't make it right. You can't fix it. You can't unsay what's been said or undo what's been done. All you can do is wait. For believers, hoping and waiting for the deliverance of those we love can be that type of gut-wrenching, painful experience. This was the kind of night that Darius was having. For Darius, eventually daylight comes. At verse 19, then at the break of day, the king arose and went to visit what he expected would be a tomb. He had covered the tomb with a stone and sealed the tomb with a signet ring, meaning off limits. However, when he reached it, he found, just like a pair of women would find when they opened Jesus' tomb about 600 years later, the death was not there. What Darius found was not a tomb, but a testimony. 
O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Well, 1 Peter 5 tells us that we have an enemy who prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. But that lion from 1 Peter 5 is no match for the lion from Revelation 5, the lion of Judah, revealed by the Apostle John. And in this throwdown, in this cage match, there's no contest. So Daniel responds. Daniel says to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Daniel has now faced a second den of lions, this time a literal den of lions and he walks away unharmed. The same cannot be said of his enemies. Darius knew that he had been conned. He was furious. These were the people that he trusted most and was gonna set over the entire region. And he had been betrayed by them and he knew it. And in case we're tempted to think that these were tame lions or not hungry lions, we are dispelled of that notion in verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they even reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Our actions, whether they reflect faithfulness to God or lack of it, matter. And they carry consequences that impact not just ourselves, but those around us, especially for those in leadership, whether it's in your home, your church, or your workplace. Daniel was an innocent man in hard circumstances who'd been sentenced to death for doing nothing wrong. A similar scenario would play out a few hundred years later in the life of Jesus, an innocent man sentenced to death for doing nothing wrong. Now, Daniel had walked into that den as a faithful follower of God. The question is, did he know that God would choose to deliver him? Uh, Perhaps not. I, I imagine his approach was like that of his three friends who had faced the fiery furnace. They had said, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, Be it known, O king, that we will not serve your gods. Not knowing if he would be delivered doesn't change Daniel's faith. In fact, it's not knowing that makes it faith. We are not promised rescue from every circumstance. We live in a fallen, sin-filled world. Choices made by us affect others, and choices made by others affect us. In fact, Jesus promises us trouble. Sometimes the healing comes, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we land the job, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes people forgive us, and sometimes they don't. Hebrews 11 has a roll call of biblical persons who made choices by faith and saw amazing rescues. Abraham, Moses, Gideon, David. In that same passage, however, are those commended for faith who instead 
received mocking, flogging, chains, prison, and death by sword or being sawed in two. They were no less faithful. Daniel would have been no less faithful had the lions indeed killed him that night. We can ask ourselves, what lion or trouble am I facing today that God will use in my life to witness to those around me? Am I giving thanks to him as Daniel gave thanks to God? Our circumstances cannot be the basis by which we determine our devotion and faithfulness to God, or just as importantly, be the basis by which we evaluate his devotion to us. That was determined once and for all for the entire world to see for all time at Calvary. God's unrelenting passion to have each person in this room spend all of eternity with him in perfect relationship and perfect joy is not to be muted by our circumstances, but rather amplified by them. He doesn't promise rescue from circumstances, but he does promise he will walk through the troubles with you in order to bring you closer to him. There's no greater comfort and satisfaction than to rest in the comfort of knowing you are at peace with God, who each of us will one day face in eternity. Our last point today is that faithfulness to God results in God being glorified. What a night for Daniel. We can wonder if the angel kept him company all night or just stopped in for a cup of coffee, closed the mouths of the lions, and took off. That would have been a long night on his own. We can wonder if Daniel nodded off or maybe sang songs to himself. Or maybe he took time to name the lions. There's Fluffy and Mustafa and... Uh, and you're a little bit older, you might be Elsa, and there's an Aslan. But what we don't have to wonder about was that, yes, our Lion of Judah was able to deliver Daniel from the lions in the den. The metaphorical lions who plotted against him, <clears throat> as well as the literal lions in the den, as well as the schemes of the enemy who prowls around like a lion. So why would God put Daniel through this test. What was the result and what was the point? Despite our occasional failings, the ongoing faithfulness of God's followers, today the church, matters. Our allegiance to God matters. Trusting him in both good and bad circumstances matters. Even in the little things, faithfulness matters. Even if the audience that sees it consists only of you and God. Now remember where we started, in exile far, far from home. <clears throat> the rescue of Daniel and Daniel's faithfulness would spread by word of mouth and decree of Darius, beginning the glorification of God. Darius hadn't yet set up his Facebook or Twitter account, but word of mouth is usually faster anyway. And news of the rescue would spread not only to the exiles in Babylon, but undoubtedly to those still living in Jerusalem and scattered throughout the region. Not only would God's followers be free to worship God, they in fact would be encouraged to do so. Yahweh had not, after all, lost a battle to the Babylonian gods. Rather, he had fulfilled his word given through Jeremiah. And although there's more to the story, God was beginning a process of calling his people home to rebuild the temple in the city. Daniel was far from home. 
Today, you might feel like you're far from home. And maybe there's rebuilding to do in your life. My encouragement to you this morning is to listen and silence the voices of doubt for just a few moments. Hear what is true and let it echo in your heart. That Jesus willingly walked into his own personal den of lions and laid himself out on a cross 2,000 years ago because we are all broken and can't, despite our best efforts, fix ourselves. He came to heal us and by doing so to restore fellowship with God. He came to open the door to joy and peace in both this life and the life to come. There is no sin, no shame, no pain. There is no lion in your life that is too large, too small, too ingrained or too ugly for God to tame. What lion is prowling in your life hoping to destroy you? Maybe it's a relationship that you know you need to give up. Maybe it's the need to forgive someone or to be forgiven by someone. Maybe if you're a believer, it's time to return and sit at the feet of the Lord after setting him aside for too long. Or maybe it's the cares of this world crowding out your time alone with God. We have no debt that he can't pay, no sin he can't forgive, no obstacle he can't move. There's no pain from years ago, yesterday, today, or the days to come that he can't heal. And there is no one in this room or watching who is without need. Jesus invites you to come home to him, to trust in his perfect sacrifice for your problems. He invites you to meet him, not as the faded image of a man in a tunic from 2000 years ago, but as the living, risen Lion of Judah. He hungers for you to put your faith and trust in him for your own eternal good. He invites each of us to act as a faithful follower and to bring glory to God, no matter the den of lions in which we live, to follow him first and foremost and to trust him in all circumstances. We're about to be invited to the Lord's table to come and be reminded of his passionate love for us. I ask you to take this time to do business with God. If you're feeling off balance or a little lost right now, it's likely that God's stirring within you. Know that this room is peppered with people who are willing to help you understand and take that next step with the Lord. You can find them at the information booth in the seats around you, up front here with Trig and I, or in the church office next week. Your response and faithfulness to God will result in God being glorified. There's an old black spiritual title, Didn't My Lord Deliver Daniel? And it asks the question in the song, did my Lord deliver Daniel, and why not every man? And indeed, why not every man, every woman, every child? To close in prayer, I'd like to read as a prayer the closing words from King Darius at the end of chapter 6 that were sent to the entire known world, not just his own kingdom. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. 
he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Amen.